This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now. Well, it's that holy God that we read about in Isaiah. And today we're going to get back to our series on Isaiah. We took a break for the holidays and and looked at some themes for Thanksgiving and Advent, but we're going to come back to Isaiah today. And so we covered chapters 1 through 39 in the fall, and we're going to cover chapters 40 through 66 in the winter and the spring. And so we begin today with chapter 40. We're going to talk about wings like eagles. And so I'm going to be looking at different verses in chapter 40 this morning, but we're going to read chapters, uh, verses 27 through 31. So if you would take your copy of God's Word, reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and we're going to look at verses 27 through 31 this morning. Wings like eagles. Jacob, why do you say And Israel, why do you assert my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, as we dig back into Isaiah today with this incredible chapter. We we pray that that your spirit would would fill us as we open your word, that your spirit would enable us to behold the wonderful things that you have put for us in your word, that your spirit would speak to us now through your word. And Father, I, I pray especially for for anyone who is weary, anyone who is discouraged, that this would be a word of encouragement and hope today. For anyone who feels weak, that this would be a word of empowerment from your spirit. And so, Father, we, we give you this time together as we, as we dig into the word together. We pray that you would make it a precious time, a life-changing time, by your grace and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here at the beginning of a new year, we are also at the beginning of a new section of Isaiah. And we did plan it this way. We plan to, to finish chapter 39 in the fall and to pick up with chapter 40 at the beginning of 2021 because chapter 40 really begins a, a new section of Isaiah, which we'll talk about in a few moments. And this, 
message in chapter 40 specifically is just such a good word for us at the beginning of a new year. And, and before we plunge into chapter 40, I want us to spend some time reviewing this morning. We've taken a few weeks off from Isaiah and some of you have picked up on this, or you're new to our church, since we began the study back in the early fall. I want us to take just a, a couple of minutes and look back and, and, and sort of set the context of, of Isaiah as a whole. We talked about at the beginning of our study of the book that there's really kind of a four-part message that we see in the book of Isaiah. There is an accusation of sin Second, there is a call to repentance. Third, there is a warning of judgment. And specifically, the judgment will come in the form of invasion and exile. So Isaiah, time and time again, and we've seen this in chapters 1 through 39, right? Again and again, we see the accusation of sin. We see the call to repentance, and we see the warning that if you guys don't repent, this is what's coming. And what's coming is invasion and exile. And Isaiah knows that ultimately they are not going to repent and they are going to experience God's judgment. Exile is coming, but there's a fourth part. And the fourth part of Isaiah's message is restoration and a glorious future. Not only restoration of the Jewish people to their land after exile, but restoration to a future that is mind-blowingly beautiful, a new heaven and earth, a whole new creation that God is going to bring about. Now we saw all four of these themes in chapters 1 through 39, but in chapters 40 through 66, we are especially going to see the fourth one, the theme of restoration, the theme of a, of, of a brand new world that God is going to bring about in the future. But we're also going to see the cost of that. What is it going to cost God to restore his broken world? What is it going to cost God to restore broken people and to rescue sinners and reconcile them to himself? And what we're going to see in chapters 40 through 66 is that it's going to cost God his son. What we're going to see in the next few weeks is we're going to see a servant revealed. And he is going to be a servant who will suffer on our behalf so that we can be restored, so that we can be reconciled. This is the suffering servant that we're going to see in chapter 53 and in other chapters in the second half of, of Isaiah. Remember one of the biggest themes in Isaiah is what we just sung about a few moments ago, holiness. Time and time again in Isaiah, God is referred to as the Holy One. Well, God's holiness means that he, he can't just wink at sin. God's holiness means he can't sweep sin beneath the rug. Sin has to be dealt with. And the, the gravity of our sins is so weighty that 
it was going to cost God his son to deal with that. And that's, that's what we're going to see in these chapters in Isaiah that are coming up. It's just a beautiful portrait of Jesus. And as we move toward Easter and towards Passion Week and all of that, we're going to see right here in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, we're going to see the cross of Christ, the suffering of Christ on our behalf. And we're going to see his resurrection, and we're going to see his return and his restoration of all things. It's all right here. And what we're going to be looking at in the second half of Isaiah. Now we're talking about holiness. In a way, and we talked about this when we introduced the book, in a way, the whole book of Isaiah is structured around the theme of holiness. So in chapters 1 through 39, we see the threat of God's holiness to sinners. I mean, if you don't have a Savior, then the holiness of God hangs over you as a threat. And we see that in chapters 1 through 39. In chapters 40 through 55, we see the loving length to which God will go to save sinners and to create a new holy people. What is the length that God will go to to save sinners? That's what we see in these chapters that are coming up. And what we're going to see is that the loving length that God will go to is that he gives his son to suffer on our behalf as a servant. And then... In chapters 56 through 66, we see the glorious future in which God makes the entire creation holy. This is the new heaven and earth. When Christ returns, the entire creation is going to be made new. Everything is going to be put to right. The entire creation is going to be made new holy. Now with that background in mind, let's plunge into chapter 40. So what do we see here in chapter 40? I want us to look at three things this morning. First of all, God's compassion in leading us out of exile. God's compassion in leading us out of exile. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Look in your Bibles at verses 1 and 2. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over, her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So in chapters 1 through 39, we saw time and again that Isaiah was warning, if you don't repent, Judgment is coming, and judgment is going to take the form of invasion and exile. That's the way that chapter 39 ended. You remember what God said to to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, through Isaiah? Look back at chapter 39 and verses 6 and 7. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Here it is. God is promising them. 
exile is coming. But what we see here at the beginning of chapter 40 is that God is telling these exile people, your exile will not last forever. No, God is going to forgive and restore. Now, God does that for us too as his people. Think about this theme of, of, of exile. Uh, there was an exile from the Garden of Eden. There was an exile of a, of a form that took place in Egypt when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And God rescued them from their slavery. How did he do that? He told them to kill lambs, sacrifice these lambs, and take the blood of these lambs and put them on your doorpost. And the death angel will pass over your homes. That's where we get the term Passover. And that, that very night, for the people who took shelter beneath the blood of those Passover lambs, the death angel passed over and they were rescued from Egypt. They went out from Egypt and then what happened? They came to the Red Sea. What did God do? Parted the waters. They went through on dry land, water standing on both sides. They passed through the waters on their way to where? The promised land. Now what has God done for us as Christ followers? We were enslaved, right, by something worse than slavery in Egypt, slavery to sin, sin and death. And, and we took shelter beneath the blood of the lamb, right? Jesus died for us. We, 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 we placed our trust in him. We've taken shelter beneath his blood shed on our behalf. God gave us new life. We pass through the waters of baptism, right? And we are on our way to the promised land. God says, I'll restore you. Your exile will not last forever. Look at verse 11. This is so beautiful. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Listen, God can take you in his arms today. Because not only is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but Jesus is also the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and who will carry you home from exile. And so we see God's compassion in leading us out of exile. Second, we see God compared to our idols. God compared to our idols. Check out verses 18 and 19. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? This is the insanity of idol worship. The Bible is saying here, <laughs> what are idols? They are nothing but things made by the hands of people. You made this stuff and now you're going to bow down and worship it? This is crazy. Verse 20, a poor person contributes wood for the pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over, but they all fall over. All the idols fall over. 
along with the people who worship them. But it doesn't have to be this way. No, you can know the true and living God. What do we see about this God? Verses 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. You ever think about why God created a universe that is so vast? I mean, you walk out at night on a clear night And if you're not in the middle of a city, you can look up and just see the most amazing canopy of stars. But we know that what our naked eye can see is just a a few of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Because the Milky Way galaxy that we live in contains like over 100 billion stars. But now we know from the Hubble telescope that our galaxy is just one of like hundreds of billions of galaxies. (laughs) So why did God do this? Why did God create a universe that is so vast? Because it's making a statement about him. It's making a statement about the awesomeness and the power of God. He not only spoke all of these galaxies and stars into existence, calls them all by name. He did it just with a word. That's the kind of God he is. But listen, here's the amazing thing. You can know this God. You can know this God as your father. And he can give his strength to you. That's the third thing that we see here in chapter 40. God's strength conveyed to us. God's strength conveyed to us. Look at verse 27. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God? Now Isaiah is anticipating how people are going to feel in exile. They're in exile in Babylon. He's anticipating how they are going to feel in exile. Now, the exile has not happened yet. The exile to Babylon was not going to happen for like another century from the time this was written. But Isaiah knows it's going to happen because God has revealed it to him. As Bible-believing Christians, we, we believe in predictive prophecy. We believe in, in a God that can reveal the future to his, his prophets and that it's written down in his, his word, and we believe that's what's happening here. Isaiah, in chapters 40 through 66, is writing about how people are going to feel in exile, and he's writing about, you know, Cyrus and the return to the land and all of that because it's been, been revealed by God. Now, liberal scholars who do not believe in predictive prophecy say Isaiah could not have written chapters 40 through 66, because it's too specific. The exile hadn't even happened yet. That was like 100 years in the future. But yet Isaiah is writing about it as if he knows it's going to happen, and he's writing about the return to the land, and, you know, and, 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 he, and God can't do that. All, you know, and Isaiah couldn't have known that and all that. So they attribute 
chapters 40 through 66 to another person, another author, like Deutero-Isaiah. <laughs> now that is based basically on just anti-supernatural bias because the evidence really points in the other direction. In 1946, there was a little Arab Bedouin boy who was shepherding around the, the, around the Dead Sea. And so he takes a rock and throws it into one of the caves near the Dead Sea and he hears pottery breaking inside the cave. And he walks in and he sees these jars of pottery and, and they contain manuscripts. Well, it was treasure. It was, it was the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The centerpiece of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you can see in Jerusalem today, is the great Isaiah Scroll. It's the oldest, oldest manuscript of Isaiah that we have by far. When you look at that ancient manuscript of Isaiah, it's not split up <laughs> into two different parts. It is all one flowing unit. But, but that's not even the greatest evidence for the integrity of Isaiah. The greatest evidence for the integrity of Isaiah is that when Jesus quotes Isaiah in the New Testament, which he does more than any other prophet, when the apostles quote Isaiah in the New Testament, when they quote from the early parts of Isaiah, <laughs> and when they quote from the later parts of Isaiah, who do they attribute it to? <laughs> Isaiah. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to who wrote Isaiah, when it comes to who wrote chapters 40 through 66, I'm going to go with Jesus. I think he knows a lot more about the Bible than me or any of us or liberal scholars or anybody else. Let's go with him. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because, verse 27, and much of what we'll see in chapters 40 through 66 is, is in the future. It hasn't taken place yet at the time when Isaiah is writing. He's writing about an exile that has not yet happened, but God has revealed to him that it's going to happen. And Isaiah knows how these people are going to feel when they are in exile, when they are far away from their homes in Babylon. He knows how they're going to feel. He knows that they're going to feel like we see here in verse 27, like that God has abandoned them. You ever feel that way in your life? That God is done with you? That God has forsaken you? that he wants nothing more to do with you? Have you ever felt that way? Isaiah knows that, that these people are gonna feel that way in exile. We're at the beginning of a new year, but maybe you feel like there are no new beginnings for you in your life. You've made too much of a mess of things. You've made too many poor decisions. You've blown it too badly. That's how God's people were going to feel in exile. Because they knew they were in exile because of their own sins. 
And they, they felt like that because we have turned away from God, God has turned away from us. Now that wasn't true for them. And it's not true for you either. There's restoration in him. He's not done with you. He loves you. And whatever poor choices you've made, and whatever mess of things you've made, just because you've turned from him doesn't mean he's turned from you. He desires to restore you and make things whole. That's what we see here. That's what we see here. Isaiah here in verse 27, it's like he's, he's he's taking these people who feel like God has abandoned them he is taking them, it's like if you were to take, take as a parent, if you take, take one of your children and just tenderly take them, they're discouraged, and you take them and you, you gently place your, place your hands on both sides of their face and you look them in the eye and say, listen to me, listen to me. That's what Isaiah is doing here. He's saying to these people who feel as if God has abandoned them, he is saying, listen to me. I know you feel this way. I know you feel that, that, that God has turned away from you forever, but you need to understand something. God is not like you. And just because you were unfaithful to him doesn't mean he's going to be unfaithful to you and unfaithful to his own promises. God's got a future for you that you can't even believe if you will turn to him. Verse 28. Do you not know Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He is not like the idols that you worshiped. He is omnipotent. He possesses all power. He's omniscient. He possesses all knowledge. But what's more, he is willing to come alongside you and convey his love and his strength to you. Verse 29, he gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. The most important thing that you could do at the beginning of 2021 is to humble yourself and to acknowledge your own weakness, your own powerlessness, This is when God works best in our lives. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in weakness. My my power works best when people acknowledge their weakness and just humble themselves and confess, Lord, I... I I need you desperately. I am lost. I am powerless without you. Do you know when we experience God's power the most, it's, it's when we acknowledge our own powerlessness, our own weakness. Verses 30 and 31. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall, 
but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. I mean, even youthful people physically have to have, they get weary. They have to have rest. They have to have sleep. Melissa and I have raised three kids. They need a lot of sleep. Even when they're like, they grow and they're teenagers and they may have a lot more energy and a lot more physical strength than us, they still need a lot of sleep. They can sleep a lot better than me. I wish I could sleep as well as them. But we get physically weary, right? The fact, what does it say that we have to spend like a huge chunk of our lives with our heads on a pillow, asleep? I mean, it is a daily reminder to us that we are creatures, that we're not God, because he never grows faint. (laughs) He never grows weary. Psalm 121 says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. But the weariness here that Isaiah is talking about is, is beyond physical weariness. Physical weariness can play into it, but it's, it's beyond this. He is talking about a spiritual weariness. A spiritual faint-heartedness. He's talking about discouragement. Discouragement. And perhaps you're there today. Psalm Isaiah 40 is a call for you to direct your weary, discouraged gaze to the one who does not grow weary. It's an invitation for us to exchange our weakness for God's strength. And if you don't know him, If you don't know this God who will convey his strength to you, he invites you to know him. Because what we're going to see in the back half of Isaiah is one who possessed all strength and yet emptied himself and came here to rescue us and assumed the ultimate posture of weakness and allowed himself to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. Can you imagine this? The one who spoke all those stars into existence, allowed himself to be in a situation as an infant when he could not speak a word. Think about that. And then the suffering servant went on to live a life of sacrifice and servanthood on our behalf. And then One day in Jerusalem, he took the ultimate posture of weakness and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross on our behalf. Our God understands. He understands suffering. He understands your suffering. He understands your weakness. The weaknesses that we experience as human beings He's been there. But he knows ultimate power 
because Jesus was raised from the dead and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he's coming again to restore all things. You can know him. You can know him today. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Allow him to fill you with his spirit and give you a power for living that you cannot possibly have on your own. This is a time of year when we think a lot about willpower. We need a lot more than willpower. We need God's power. We need a lot more at the beginning of a new year than kind of making some tweaks and modifications in our lives. We need new life. It comes from Jesus. He is life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the portrait of Christ that we see in Isaiah, the good news that we see here the opportunity for newness of life, for life abundant, life eternal that we see in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you for how Jesus is just so clearly placed before our eyes in the book of Isaiah. And we pray that you would continue to bless us as we study it. Father, I pray for, that you would use this study to draw us closer to you. Father, I pray specifically today for anyone who's here, anyone who is watching that is discouraged, that needed this word of hope today. Father, would you grant them the grace just to surrender and to, 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 to acknowledge their own weakness and powerlessness and to look to you, the one who possesses all power and who will convey it to people by your spirit. Father, for anyone who is here, anyone who's watching, who doesn't yet know Christ as their Savior and King, then Father, I pray that this would be a time right now of repentance and faith, of turning, turning from sin and self and turning to Jesus and trusting in him and resting in his finished work on our behalf, his shed blood on the cross for sinners like us, his resurrection from the dead that for anyone who doesn't know him, that would turn to Jesus right now in repentance and faith and experience the new life that is found in him. It's in his name that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 